A few weeks ago, uh, on a Thursday night, um, during the Q&A after our Thursday night service, a high schooler asked me a question. Uh, he, he asked me, how do I invite someone to church who isn't a Christian, who's been hurt really bad by the church, and who, because of his, um, because of his kind of worldview, he has a real problem with some of the things the church believes? And, uh, and I loved this question because, first of all, it came from a 17-year-old boy um, who really wanted to invite his math tutor to our church. Um, but what I loved about it was that he was putting himself in the shoes of his tutor. And he was trying to think through all the different obstacles that would get in the way of, of him actually showing up here to church. And as, as he was talking and as I, as I was trying to respond, uh, I kept thinking about all the different types of litmus test questions that people have. And we all have them. We all have uh, these questions that once this question is answered, it affects the trajectory of everything else. It affects whether or not I'm going to be friends with this person, whether or not I'll go on a second date with this person, whether or not I'll let my kids hang out with your kids, whether or not I'll come back to that church on Sunday. Like, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? Or are you uh, depressed? Um, uh, what is your stand about this? What, what do you believe the Bible teaches on this particular topic? We all have questions like that, that we want to get the answers to those questions first. But the question I most want people to wrestle with is the question, is Jesus who he said he is? That's the main question for me. And so uh, you'll find if you're around me that I'm often trying to avoid answering all the other litmus test questions because those questions I think tend to get in the way of people actually really dealing with and wrestling with the Jesus question. Well, what Paul has been doing in these first three chapters, he's really been making a case for the Jesus question. He's been showing us kind of the manifold, the, the multicolored, the multifaceted wisdom of God that included this plan, this plan that, that was conceived before the foundation of the earth, where God would draw to himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He would bring together unlikely friends, and he would do this all through his son, Jesus, who would save us by grace alone. This is what he's been, he's been saying and teaching in these first three chapters. And now he begins to answer the follow-up question to that. The follow-up question being, if Jesus is who he says he is, now what does this mean for my life? So in the next few chapters, Paul is going to show us what life should look like if we've come to the place where we say yes. Yes, Jesus is the son of God. Yes, Jesus came and, and died for my sins. Yes, Jesus came so that I could have life and life abundantly. Yes, Jesus came to usher in a new kingdom, a new way to be human. If we answered yes to that, now Paul says for the rest of this chapter, the rest of, this, rest of these chapters, the rest of this letters, now this is how you should live. So for the rest of the summer, we're gonna hear a bunch of things we need to stop doing. We're gonna hear a bunch of things that... Um, that we need to start doing. We're gonna learn, learn what it means to be a good husband and a good wife and a good parent and a good worker. There's gonna be a lot of be better and do better. And because of that, it's so important that we remember what Paul prayed for us in Ephesians 3. Before Paul gives us this guide to Christian living, before he gives us the so now what, 
he prays not uh, that we would be better. He doesn't pray that we would feel convicted of our sin. He doesn't even pray that our sin would completely vanish. He prays that we would know that we are loved. That's what he prayed. That's what we talked about last week in Ephesians 3. And so as we move into this this new part of the letter, as we spend the rest of the summer looking at what it means for us to live as God would want us to live, we cannot forget that prayer. We cannot forget that all of this begins with saying yes to the Jesus question, which is essentially saying yes to being unconditionally loved. So with that being said, let's look at our text for today. It's Ephesians 4. I'm going to start reading in the first verse. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Jesus Christ apportioned it. This is, what it's, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is God's word. Now that Paul has answered the Jesus question, he follows it up with, now live a life that's worthy of the calling you have received. I don't know about you, Uh, But to me, this has always been one of the most intimidating verses in all of Scripture. Live worthy. Yeah, yes, yes, I want to do that. I want to live worthy. But I also know me. And that seems like maybe an impossible task. And as as I've been wrestling with with that verse in particular this week... um, one of the things I've realized is, is that my intimidation about living up to living worthy is really based on kind of a, a subtle, incorrect belief in, a, in who I am in Christ. See, when I answered yes to the Jesus question, I became new, but not complete. I'm new, but I'm also being made new. So Paul, in these next few chapters of Ephesians, is going to show us that, yes, you have been made new through the work of Christ, but you are also being made new. 
And there's a part that you and I play in the process of us being made new. In other words, I can say yes to the Jesus question and become a Christian, but if I want to go from being a baby Christian to a mature Christian, I have some work to do. Something has, uh, that has been said around here uh, for many years is, is grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Before we unpack that, I need to say, if you die a baby Christian, uh, that's enough. Uh, the thief on the cross, when, when, when Jesus was dying next to him, he, the, Jesus, the thief on the cross just said yes to the question. That was it. And, and Jesus said, that's enough. Today you will be with me in paradise. There is nothing that you and I can do, borrowing from Martin Luther, there, that is more effectual than the blood of God's own son. We cannot outwork the work that Christ has done on our behalf. We will not be loved more because of the efforts we put forth, but... We can experience God's kingdom and his delight in using us to do some really cool stuff as we engage in the work. We can begin to live a different kind of humanity, the kind that God had in mind when he thought us up. So we're new, but we're not complete, and you and I are invited into the work of being made new. Last week, uh, Jim showed uh, some pictures of his grandkids, um, and, and not that I'm competing or anything, but I, I thought I would show you a, a picture of my baby girl, and so, uh, uh, yeah, and with a puppy, and again, uh, not that I'm trying to one-up my brother, but, I mean, do you see her with that puppy? I mean, come on, that's pretty cute, right? Uh, this is Prin, and uh, Prin is our youngest uh, for a little while. We're getting ready to have a fifth, but, uh, but right now she's the youngest. She has three older brothers and sisters who are actually quite a bit older than her. Um, and one of the things I've been noticing about Prin that I don't remember with my other children is that she seems to really want to be a lot more grown up than she is. Um, and I guess that's because she's around a bunch of older kids, uh, but she hates being in, in, a, in a high chair. And I don't remember any of my other kids even knowing that they're in a high chair. Um, and not, I mean, you know, I know some kids don't like to be strapped in and they want to be free to roam around. She's not mad about being in a high chair because she wants to run around. She's mad because she wants to sit in a chair like everyone else. And uh, she started doing this thing where she, she uh, walks and, and puts herself in the car, and she'll go and sit in a regular seat, I think in hopes that we'll just strap a seatbelt on her. Um, she doesn't like to ride on the baby swing. She wants to be in a big girl swing. I mean, she is this little tiny thing that wants to be grown up, but she's not. I think most of us want to be a grown-up Christian, but it doesn't just happen. When we say yes to the Jesus question, we're told that we are born again, which means we're born again. It means we're, we're not full-blown spiritual adults. We are born as spiritual babies. So I don't care how old or mature or wise you were when you said yes to that question. We all start out as spiritual babies. We all start out as new and not complete, and there's work to be done. So how do we mature? There are lots of different ways that we mature and develop, but I, I really think the key comes in this passage here. And I think it's, it's a theme that we're going to see throughout the rest of the letter, and it comes right at the very end of the passage we read. We need to tell the truth. Our, Christian, our growth as Christians is tied to our speaking and hearing the truth spoken in love. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. 
So when was the last time you were, you were uh, really honest with somebody? Or when was the last time someone was really honest with you? How'd it go? Or maybe a, a more revealing question would be, when was the last time you told someone a lie? And what was the circumstances? What, what, what made you tell that lie? I mean, why? I, uh, I confess before uh, that I struggle with lying. Um, I have since I was a kid. Uh, but I found out not too long ago um, that it's not really my fault, that it's part of my personality. And so um, there's this uh, personality test called the Enneagram. Uh, and if you're into that kind of thing, I highly recommend it. It's my favorite of all the personality tests. But there's nine different personality types in the Enneagram, and I'm a three. Um, and and if you read about threes, you'll think, oh man, like, yes, like every other one is better than a three, but that's what I am. And so uh, there's this book by Richard Rohr, who is a brilliant man who loves Jesus, who he, he takes the nine different types and, and he, he writes about the different sins that each type will struggle with. And threes more often struggle with lying. So I'm a firstborn, eager to please, pretty hard on myself. I want everyone to be happy with me. I, I want uh, to make a good impression. I want to look like I performed well or, or you know, I, I just, I, and so if that means that I have to tell a little lie, like uh, it's, it's for the best, right? But Paul says, if you answer the Jesus question with a yes, you gotta start telling the truth. The whole truth, nothing but the truth, and you have to do it in love. And not just for your sake or for God's sake, but for the sake of others. What Paul is telling us in this passage is that the church is a community that is developed and unified through speaking the truth in love. Summit can only grow and mature as each and every one of us, as, as members, as, as parts of this body here, speak the truth in love to one another. Now, most religions will tell you don't lie. Let's say, don't lie because it's bad for you. Don't lie because if you get caught, you're gonna make a mess. Don't lie uh, because a gentleman is only as good as his word. Um, and, and they're right. Lying has horrible consequences. And um, I'm just the boy who cried wolf, right? You, you could have your guts you know, eaten by an animal or whatever if you lie. So, so there's lots of things that could happen if you lie. But the moralist would say, don't lie because it's bad for you. But Paul says, don't lie because it's bad for us. Paul says, don't lie because it's important for the growth of the church that we tell each other the truth, that we are one body and one spirit. We must speak the truth to one another. That's how we become grown-up Christians. So how do we do that? How do we speak the truth in a way that builds and unifies the church and doesn't destroy it? Now, some of you, you're already like, I got this. I have no problem with lying. I am a truth teller. And when you speak the truth, you speak the truth and you don't care the emotional wreckage that you leave behind. You are brutally honest. And if that's you, uh, you need to remember that speaking truth for truth's sake is not our job. That's not our calling. There is definitely a wrong way to be right. Answering the follow-up question to the Jesus question is not, what does this mean for my life? I'm to annihilate people. But it also isn't, I'm just supposed to sympathize with people. So how do we do it? How do we speak the truth in love? How do we speak the truth in a way that causes us and others to become in every respect, as Paul says, the mature body of Christ? Well, I have three questions that I like to think through 
when I'm trying to figure out how to speak the truth in love. And here they are. Uh, number one, does the truth you are speaking meet a need in the one you are speaking to? Number two, are you willing to give yourself not just advice? And number three, does the truth you are speaking have in mind eternity? So let's, let's examine each of these questions. Question one, does the truth you are speaking meet a need in the one you are speaking to? A spiritual baby, uh, like, a, like a real baby, is incredibly self-centered and needy. They're always thinking about themselves and their needs. But if you and I, if we want to mature, we must do the hard work of thinking of others first, thinking of others more. When I speak, it's not about meeting my needs, but meeting the needs of others. It's saying what they need to hear, not saying something that I know will get them to respond to me in, in a way that I want to hear. It means that before I speak truth to anyone, am I praying and asking wisdom, saying, what does my friend Johnny really need to hear from me? What, where does he need this conversation to go? What can I say to him that will give grace to him? See, speaking the truth in love means speaking a truth that meets a need in someone else, whether or not they can identify that need or not. Jesus did something very interesting at a dinner party once. He was, um, he was at a dinner party uh, a Pharisee was throwing it, one of the religious men of the day. And, uh, and as Jesus is at this dinner party, he begins to notice how concerned everyone is with where they're seated, how close they are to the host, how close they are to him because he was the guest of honor. And then Jesus casually says, he says, when you're invited by someone to a, to a party or a wedding feast, don't sit down in the place of honor in case someone more, more distinguished and honored and revered than you is invited. Because then the one who invited you will ask you to move to a lower place and you'll be humiliated as you have to move to that lower place. But rather, sit in the lowest place so that the host will say to you, friend, move up higher. Okay, so put yourself in this scene. Imagine that you are, you are a guest at this table. And imagine you are sitting in a, in a really good spot. How would you be feeling prior to Jesus' comments? You'd probably be feeling pretty good, right? I know some of you probably would be feeling embarrassed or like, oh man, this must have been a mistake. Like I shouldn't be sitting here. But most of us would start feeling like, ah, I'm pr this is pretty good. Look at, look at where I'm sitting compared to everyone else. Now imagine that you were in a bad seat. What would you be doing? You'd be looking at everyone who's in a better seat than you and, and trying to evaluate and judge how you actually deserve their seat instead of them. And Jesus, while he is a guest of honor at someone else's home, says just outright to these guests that they are motivated by pride and power in their seating arrangements. And if they continue in that motivation, ultimately they will be shamefully humiliated. And he doesn't just stop there. He then turns to the host and says, when you give a dinner, don't invite your friends and your rich neighbors. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Do you hear what Jesus just did? Jesus just turned on the host. He exposed the host in front of all the other guests. If this, if this had happened today, the, the hashtag host got exposed party would be trending on Twitter right now. And there'd be all these gifs or gifs or whatever of people like dropping mics and going, oh no, you know, like it would be like a huge deal. Jesus says to him, you think you're hospitable. You're not. You're not hospitable at all because true hospitality is giving to people who can't repay you or mention your goodness to others. 
So Jesus speaks this truth. Now, because I made the Twitter connection, it's, it seems really harsh, right? Like, you know, there's no grace on Twitter. But, but you know, like, but, but if we think a little bit more deeply about what Jesus is doing here, we see that, that Jesus is actually speaking to meet the need of those who are hearing him. What is everyone doing at this party? It says that Jesus begins noticing how everyone's so concerned with where they're sitting. Jesus is looking around at a room full of people who are focused on their position, who are in that moment assigning worth to themselves based on where their place card is at a table. And he's looking at the, uh, the host, this host who, as a religious man, is getting so much worth from, from how he believes he's doing, how, how, how hospitable he's being. See, these people desperately need to hear that they are free from getting their worth from something so insignificant. The host needs to be free uh, from getting his worth from, from how well or, or, or how good he's obeying or following the law. And see, if, imagine if, if in that moment, those who heard Jesus really applied what he just said to them. What would happen? They wouldn't get upset their whole world would be turned upside down. They would realize that they no longer needed to be seen as, as perfect. They no longer needed to worry about their position in society. They didn't always have to be right. They could get messy and dirty. They could risk. Not only would they feel free from, from all those constraints, they would feel free to, to, to break out of the safety of their own groups and start seeking the oppressed and the outcast of their society. See, it would, be, it would be an absolutely wonderful way to live if those who heard Jesus applied what he said to them. They'd be free. They'd be free to love, to, to, to love people at the furthest corners of the world. See, Jesus offered a truth that met a need that they desperately had. Another way to think about this is um, don't address a sin until you can also address the holy longing behind that sin. See, once, once you and I can, can figure out what it is that people are looking for, what is their need, what is, what is their longing that actually is a holy and, and good longing that was given them by God, once we figure that out, you and I can then speak truth to them in a way that's loving. So that's the first question. When you're thinking about having a hard conversation, when, when you realize that there is a truth that needs to be spoken, the way you know you're speaking it in love is if you think through, is what I'm about to say going to meet a need in this person? And do I know what that need is? Question two, are you willing to give yourself not just advice? Paul says in Ephesians 2, or 4, 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. Paul is essentially saying at the beginning of this shift where he goes from giving us theological um, words to practical words, he says, okay, be good friends. Be, be a good friend to another. Be patient with each other. Bear with one another. One another is a mutual relationship. He's saying, I want you to engage in mutual interdependent relationships that are built on telling each other the truth. 
without personal involvement, without willingness to open up, without willingness to enter into relationship, you're not really a friend and you can't really speak the truth in love. Maybe you're a person who gives really great advice, but our calling is not as advice givers. Our calling is to speak the truth to one another in a way that's relational. So how do we do that? Well, I think it starts with telling the truth about ourselves. Your story told truthfully is good news for others. Every single one of us is capable of that. Every single one of us can offer that to other people. That is what it, that is what it means to, that's part of what it means to live a life worthy of the calling we've received, is to share. How did we come about getting this calling? How do we receive it? We received it by grace. It's sharing that story. That's why it's so important that that we're part of connect groups uh, because we're not all going to share our stories when we gather together in kind of a big setting like this. But when we get into a connect group, we have the opportunity to just begin to share ourselves. When was the last time you offered yourself instead of advice? Instead of correcting a behavior, you shared a story of your own struggle. Parents, we have such a huge opportunity with our kids What if our kids' spiritual growth corresponded with how much we told them the truth about us? I think it works that way because I've at least seen the opposite. There are so many people who come into my office who are are stagnant in their spiritual growth, who who have hit a wall, who are are stuck in in a very immature faith. And so many times as they begin talking about their story, they talk about parents who never messed up who never admitted mistakes or failures, parents who set up a standard that they they could never keep up with. Your story told truthfully is good news for your children. So as we're seeking to speak the truth in love, one of the things we have to ask ourselves is in speaking this, am I willing to not just give advice? Am I willing to give myself? Am I willing to share the truth about me? Last question, does the truth you are speaking have eternity in mind? In verses 11 through 13, it says this. Let me read it again. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What is that? What what are we being called to be a part of building? Why Why does Paul tell us God gave us pastors and teachers? To equip us for ministry. We are all in ministry. Every single one of us who answered yes to the Jesus question has a job to do in building the church. It's not just for the paid staff. We've all been given gifts that are desperately needed. We must never rule ourselves out of the process of building the church. If you are here, you are needed. There are things that you have to offer that only you can offer. And as you offer those gifts, as you offer yourself, as you, as you share your story, as you speak the truth and love to one another, we are being built up and made mature. We are, we are, we are being made into what God has laid out uh, that, that he's gonna accomplish one day. 
that we're being made into a community of people that don't make sense to the world. That we're made into people who are seeking redemption of all things. That, that we're, we're going after things that are broken and, and trying to, to be a part of the repair. That we're, we're going after things that are lost, things that have run away. That, that nothing will stop us from chasing those things down. When you speak the truth, are you thinking about that picture? That picture of the, the most lost, the most broken being one day restored. If you're going through uh, the Ephesians study in your connect group, we're going through it. And one of the questions we looked at this past week was, if you could do anything uh, for God and you knew it wouldn't fail, what would you do? And I immediately thought about all these people that I would run after with the gospel that I just don't. I don't because I think that there's no way. And not even just that there's no way. I really know that I, I'll be rejected if I even try to go after them. But Paul paints such a picture in the first three chapters of Ephesians of God's plan of what will one day be, of all that he can accomplish. And I mean, Romans, I mean, not Romans, Ephesians 2 is all about how crazy it is that you and I went from death to life, how crazy grace is and how it can, it can, it can save the, 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 the furthest from God. And Paul says, now that you have that picture in mind, go out and speak the truth in love. Paul says in verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul ends this section saying we have a deep obligation to one another. That every part has to do his or her part. There's no place in the Bible that, that teaches uh, this is all about Jesus and me. It's always about being a part of the body. It's all about being one in body and one in spirit. Don't lie because it's bad for us. Speak the truth in love because we all need it. I was um, talking to a middle schooler the other day and she was saying um, how sometimes she wishes her parents would take her cell phone away. And, um, and I know if that happened in reality, there'd be wailing and gnashing of teeth and, and she didn't really mean it. But, um, and, and, I, and as she was talking, I was like, I can't really relate to this because I had to be 16 before I could have a beeper. And so, um, but I was listening to her and, and she was talking about uh, how much she feels controlled by her phone and, and how she's always worried. She's always worried about what's going on on her phone. She's always checking her Instagram to see how many likes she's got. She's always checking Facebook, kind of scrolling through, making sure that her friends aren't having fun without her. She's always checking to see uh, what the boy she likes liked and, and, and why he hadn't liked the picture of her in front of that wall. Was it the wall or was it her? Like what, what caused him to withhold his like? And as she's talking to me and I was listening to her, I just realized how much her phone is telling her how much her phone is speaking to her. She's being tossed back and forth by so many waves. What are we doing to help her? What are we doing to help each other? What are we speaking and saying to one another that is helping us move towards hope and love and maturity 
and being transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. How good have we been at telling each other the truth? Let's pray. Father God, I ask that as we move into this second half of Ephesians, as we begin to wrestle with what it looks like to actually live out this calling, to live out of, uh, of the fact that we have been saved by you, that we have been loved unconditionally by you. I pray that as we wrestle with these things, we would have tremendous amounts of bravery. We'd have tremendous amounts of compassion. And Father, I don't know what, what each of us uh, has in front of us this week, and there's probably some places where we know we've been withholding truth. There are some relationships that, that there are things that we need to say. And, and so, Father, I pray that your spirit would give us words to speak in love. And Father, we need to hear some truth. Father, I pray that you would bring people into our life this week that will say things that we desperately need to hear, that meet a need deep in our heart, that expose whatever false thing we're putting hope in. Father, I pray that you would make Summit Church a place that is being built up into your body more fully because each of us are engaging in what you've given us to do. And so show that to us, reveal that to us. And Father, we ask uh, that you would surprise us with who you bring into this place. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.